0: I think the world is truly global right now and culture is becoming more fluid. You know, people talk about appropriation. I don't really accept it all the time because sometimes I think it's politicized. But I think that customers right now are willing to celebrate, celebrate other cultures in a very inclusive way. And I use the word celebrate quote unquote because I think we enjoy dipping into other people's worlds and exploring it. And uh, this is a fantastic time for brands to cross over from the west to the east and the east to the west
1: i am susie menkes and you are listening to my podcast creative conversations As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing It is two decades since a now world-famous Indian designer started his career in Kolkata with three people and fabrics that dreams are made of. Now Sabiasachi Mukherjee has spread his fame from his country to go international in New York, where he has queues round the block in the city's West Village. And this spring he has opened a magnificent new store in Mumbai, which I just visited recently when in India. I saw the finishing touches being applied. His historic flagship building in Kolaba, south of the city centre, just opened, and it has everything from fine jewellery to women's wear and menswear, and a collection which talks to his international clientele. He creates his own textiles, fabrics, and prints, and has a passionate mantra of save the sari. Since starting to dress the famous back in 2002, Sabia not only became the fashion king of Bollywood, but now he has dedicated the entire ground floor of the new shop to bridal. As one of the most desirable and influential bridal wear designers within the 50 billion Indian wedding industry, he has created designs for practically every recent celebrity Indian wedding. Expect to see those stars like Priyanka Chopra Jonas in the new store that is decorated with historic furnishings which are there for attitude and atmosphere. They are not for sale, but for the immersive experience. Sebio is going to tell us about his life and times and unbelievable success. His mantra, the personalized imperfection of the human hand. So it's wonderful to be here in Mumbai and especially to see Beginnings of your new store, which is opening in a few weeks' time, and um, I wanted to ask you what this means for you.
0: You know, Susie, one of the pillars of the brand has been uh, retail. If I were to think about the few pillars of the brand that has made it the brand that it is today, one of them would be a very distinctive social point of view about how capturing the zeitgeist of a country that's changing so fast. The other would be probably the way we merge hospitality into retail. I'm not a very social person. I don't really enjoy the social side of fashion too much. You know, I like the business side of fashion. I enjoy that. You know, increasingly as designers become influencers and you know, uh, you know, social politics kick in, I find myself constantly wondering how will I fit into. An industry where I already fit like uh, feel like a misfit. So one of the things that we did was I said, okay, fine, if people can't really meet me and see me, they can at least come into my homes, which is one of the reasons when you mentioned when you were walking with me that it feels like somebody's home. And that was the intent. Many years ago, when I was seeing Pretty Woman, I remember a very classic line from that film where Richard tells Julia Roberts, that stores are never nice to people, they're only nice to credit cards. And I said that that is not what... What's going to happen with the brand? We wanted people to feel at home. Fashion kind of tries to play a one-upmanship with customers by playing an intimidation game. I don't like, I don't enjoy doing that. You know, like, even if the stores are opulent, there are a little bit of knickknacks and curiosity things thrown in. So you don't really feel intimidated in a store. You feel, you know, actually when you walk in maybe the first few seconds would be intimidating because of the scale of the store, but then you feel like you're probably in in a home that you've known from your past life or from your past. And I like to do that. I, I like to flirt with the idea that fashion can be a beautiful, inclusive, comfortable business. It does not have to be intimidating and cold
1: i certainly felt when we did this wonderful tour um, yesterday of your almost finished store there was such a sense that it was perfect the pieces that were chosen were really saying something about yourself and how you feel it couldn't have been anybody else's store and also you were giving a lot out about yourself about your taste about your love of colours and patterns, and you were giving that out to everybody, everyone who comes in the store. Two
0: influences really, one of them was Ralph Lauren, because you know, uh, when I was a fashion student and I was watching the Ralph Lauren story unfold in its full glory, Ralph Lauren was never really about fashion, he was more about lifestyle. And, you know, I liked the fact that he had families and women cooking and, you know, campaigns with, you know, celebrating uh, good old America. And, you know, it was very aspirational to a lot of people who wanted to have a better life. And I think that's what fashion should do. You know, fashion should transport you into wanting to lead a better life than just to look good. And, you know, when I, when I think about my country and especially Calcutta, I mean, people who have been in, in Calcutta would know that it's such an important city culturally to the country uh, because the greatest filmmakers from the country, the greatest musicians from the country, whether it's Ravi Shankar, whether it's Satyajit Ray, or even the big influence of Tagore and Mother Teresa, it all started from Calcutta. And, you know, through osmosis, Calcutta has become such a cultural center that that even, even the poorest of the poor in Calcutta probably have such a sense of four world charm and dignity and culture and all of that oozes out of every home in Calcutta. You know, like what I like about Calcutta is that, you know, every Bengali home, whether upper class or middle class, has a showcase. And in that showcase, they put all their life things out for display for the occasional visitor. So they will have sports medal, they will have, you know, local ointments, they would, uh, probably somebody rich would uh, would have a very important painting, somebody would have a child's doodle, you know, they would have replicas of Eiffel Towers and Taj Mahals and, and, you know, chins and uh, battered pottery all lined together in one showcase, gathering dust, because it's, it's their lifetime in a showcase. And that's really the Calcutta aesthetic that, you know, we are... You know, uh, when you look at Calcutta, people in Calcutta do not value products on the basis of money. For them, preciousness is about sentimental attachment. It is a city where sentimentality is a very big thing. And I I think that's what uh, the story is about. You know, for me, when I think of nostalgia, it's not about being staying in the past. It's about things in the past that kind of redefine the values that
1: you have today. So being in mumbai means something very important to you because it's not your home area it's not where you really are romantically attached but it's still a vibrant city and you certainly have found an extraordinary peace that really Towers over the landscape. It's a big store. It has many areas to it. And um, it's really something new for you in this size, isn't it? Even the um, American store is not quite as big as that, or perhaps it is. No, no, the New York store is nothing as big as that. I don't think I would afford the rent. But uh, the Mumbai
0: store is big. You know, we have created large format stores, like our New Delhi store is about 12,000 square feet. Uh, but this one is a staggering, uh, almost close to 30,000 square feet. The reason we did that was I think I think the brand is becoming more and more important within the country. It's getting more and more recognized nationally and internationally. And I, I just wanted to celebrate the exuberance of this country with people here at large. You know, we are in a very high traffic area. So there are a lot of people who are going to come to shop, but there are also a lot of people who are going to come to browse. And... You know, I keep telling myself that what really is my contribution in fashion? Am I going to be remembered for making great clothes? And I don't don't want to choose that path because, you know, I've often said in many of my interviews that I'm probably a ferryman between the past and the present because uh, the generation that we are living in has lost... A lot of it's ability to retrace back into the past. But the younger generation today is wanting to get back to the past because, you know, they have full of wonderment and curiosity. They've read about India in their history books. They have listened to glorious tales of India from their grandmother and their grandparents. But they really haven't seen much. And I I wanted to create almost like a museum, like a living memory for people to come and enjoy. And for that, we needed that scale.
1: One thing that we couldn't... Um not imagine for your store is the bridal it's something for which you are so famous the delicacy the imagination that you put into things that normally are just thought of for this one day and um you've put all your amazing things for weddings on the first floor, the main floor, the ground floor. So it's a statement really, isn't it, saying this is important, this is beautiful, come and look at it.
0: So normally, Susie, if you you look at any store format, the the entry-level product is always on the ground floor which in most department stores, if you go by a department store format, would be cosmetics and accessories. But for us, it's bridal. You know, bridal is what everybody in India wants to get from the brand. And, you know, uh, there are so many people who come from various backgrounds who would probably come into the brand only just once to shop. You know, for a lot of people, it's a lifetime pilgrimage to be able to buy a bridal enga. Uh, And we're very cognizant and respectful of the fact that, you know, people come here with a lot of expectations and we want to be able to deliver our best. And the most beautiful thing about doing bridal wear in this country is that, uh, you know, if craft needs to survive at its highest quality, craft needs to have patronage. And what I like about the bridal wear industry in India and wedding industry, actually, not bridal wear, it sustains so much of Indian handicrafts and craft processes, whether it's local flowers, whether it's tents, whether it's shamianas whether it's local music, with jewelry, clothing, architecture, or even hiring out old monuments to get weddings done. I think nowhere in India do we celebrate India in its purest form as much as we do in a wedding. And it keeps the tradition Alive, And I have often said to people that, you know, what makes India distinct is India's cultural elements. And if that was to get homogenized in our attempt to be modern, I don't think it would be an exciting country. So bridal wear actually plays a very pivotal role in preserving art and craft in this country. Just merely by the sheer volume and value of consumption and the fact that people are so heritage proud during weddings. I wish they could do that every day of their lives. But if it's only in weddings, so be it.
1: A wedding is always a sort of a dream. And isn't it rather a dream of yours to imagine that people will stop moving into worldwide clothes, especially men? When you go out into the streets, it's very rare to see a man on an ordinary day wearing anything but the clothes that are worn across the world by all men a t shirt and a pair of trousers. For women, it's slightly different. Do you feel you're going to be a campaigner to encourage people to keep to the tradition that is so important to India right across?
0: I think uh, it's been a lifelong battle. I've always done it, you know. I've been in the industry for 20 years, but you know, we have we've been consistent in our messaging. And we've done things. We've never, you know, we've we've never really thrown ourselves too far away from the train, because we've we've uh, kept on track and we've kept messaging the importance of uh, Indian craft and Indian textiles. Uh, sometimes I get panned for being repetitive. Sometimes people say it's a political agenda, but I I truly think that you know the clothing that we have in this country is so spectacular and so special that it needs to be celebrated. And my fear is that, you know, I keep telling people that courage can skip a a generation, but craft cannot, because if craft skips a generation, then the craft is not going to be there anymore. And I hope more, more and more and more younger, younger people in this country who have great hopes that they're going to carry the carry forward the tradition of India in in a very strong way, because, you know, they have grown up in a in a free country where they could do exactly what they wanted to do. The markets uh, the markets were free. There was no barrier to getting Western goods and luxury goods. You know, when everything becomes free, then people become a little more responsible about their choices. And I think the younger generation is actually willingly wearing a lot of Indian textiles, Indian weaves. There are so many young designers in this country uh, who are doing magnificent work in reviving Indian tradition and textiles and i think uh, you know a little little movement that me rita kumar and a few others we started has 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 become almost like a monumental movement today i mean we don't really speak about it but it's everywhere you know we, uh, there was a time when i had done a campaign called save the sari at a time when nobody was wearing a sari in india i think that campaign is completely redundant now because the sari does not need saving it's everywhere and it's exciting
1: so why do you think that at retail you can keep to these traditions of course i understand it as far as weddings go they are such an important part of your work and also this part of the world but at the same time you have all these wonderful antique objects in your new store on every floor and um, they look extraordinary but in the end you have to have something that is also present as well as part of the past. In the past there can be these wonderful paintings and little drawings and all these things that give you a feeling that there are layers and layers of um, lives that have gathered together these pieces. But when it comes to selling clothes and jewellery, these are things that really are for the modern world. Was that Fair to
0: say that absolutely, which is which is one of the reason in our ready to wear section, it's all clothing that you can wear every day and clothing that is relevant to today's society because you see weddings can sometimes be costume, but you know when uh, you capture the zeitgeist of a country by wearing clothing every day. You know, it it never gets talked about, but we actually have a very, very large saree business where they are not occasion based saris, but we know women wear it to corporate boardrooms, they wear it for travel, and uh, we do the same thing with the Indian clothes as well. What we haven't done in 20 years in India is we haven't really done an international line of clothing, which this is the first time that we're gonna do it. You know, we've done it in New York, we're bringing it here. I remember uh, meeting you about 15 years ago as a confused, young designer trying to make an impression in the western world and i said you know uh, I've, i'm showing at browns i'm showing at selfridges but i'm still not very satisfied i don't know what to do and i remember you telling me that you're such a vibrant country you should focus on making some clothes for your own country as well and i listened to your advice and i built this brand and i've acknowledged this in every single interview uh, that you know that one fateful conversation that i had with you and i it just opened up my mind to the possibilities of how much power the country is. And as we speak today, Dior showed last night in this country to probably acknowledge the power that India is today.
1: I'm quite stunned to imagine that something that I wrote in a um, story for the New York Times has gone into your head and your mind, because I think all the real energy came from you and not from me. At the same time, I think it's very interesting that you think in this way that going back now 25 years since you started starting with three people helping you how did you manage to develop into how things are today how slow did it go how quickly did it go
0: see the bad thing about me is that i'm very stubborn and the good (laughs) thing about me is that money doesn't motivate me you know when you build a vision strategy for a brand you need to know where you're going and where you're headed you know i've always wanted reverence over skill, and uh, you know for me i could have done a lot very quickly you know there were greater opportunities because i know the power that i yield in this country i i know the influence that i have in this country from very early in my life there were many opportunities to sell out secondly if you look at the influence of, the, of us in this country like you know we had an HM collection that sold out in seven seconds. You know, if you just look at the sheer volume of the copy market or the plagiarized the shadow market of Sabishachi in this country, it's staggering. It's probably seven hundred to eight hundred times the size of my business. I could have easily plugged that by opening up franchisees, but which also meant that I would have lost control. You know, a business that I really respect and I admire, the two businesses that I really respect and admire are probably Chanel and Hermes. I looked at how quietly Hermes has built a brand without influence. They don't have actors on their red carpet. You know, they don't pander to dressing up people. They just do things in their very quiet manner. And I was reading an interview by one of the Indian actresses called... Dipika Padukone, who's right now the top person in this country, like you know, she's she's the face of LV and uh, Cartier, and she said it's the power of patience, and I've been very very patient about building my brand. I'm in no hurry, you know. The thing is that my real contribution to this business would be to setting up the foundation. Maybe the next generation is going to carry the business forward. I won't. I probably won't be alive to see where the business reaches. But in my lifetime, I want to make sure that I sow the foundation so deep that nobody can mess with it. So for me, it's just been a singularity of vision that you know I would, I would seek, quality over scale. <music>
1: Back to your very young persona when you were perhaps 16, 17, 18 years old. When did you start thinking about what you were going to do? And I don't imagine at that stage with you or your parents you discussed the idea that you would be making clothes.
0: No, not at all. My parents wanted me to study medicine you know I was a the big problem with me and growing up middle class in bengal was i was a brilliant student i was good in science so your parents you know in india education is like an arranged marriage your parents decide for you where you need to go who you need <laughs> to marry <laughs> yeah it's like you know so for middle class bengalis you can either be a doctor or an engineer anything that you do is almost looked upon as uncivilized fashion may very low in the totem pole in fact My father was very upset that why would I throw away such good education and become a fashion designer? You know, for him it was, it was like a tailoring business. You know, there was, he said, this is not what educated people do. And I had to really convince him that I wanted to do fashion. Nobody in my family has ever done business. You know, they're all, I come from a family of educationists and doctors and I was the black sheep. And my father still thinks, he, he thinks that I've made a lot of money and uh, I've got a lot of national international fame. But I think somewhere deep in his heart, he still thinks that he would respect me a little more had I become a doctor. So that really was the starting years. And I was a hellraiser. I was a terrible kid. I had orange hair and I was <laughs> in love with Madonna. <laughs> and I used to wear crucifixes and mesh t-shirts. And very inspired by Gautier. And all my art school projects had leather and SM and and safety pins. Until, you know, I went on a field trip uh, during my last days in college and uh, I discovered it in textiles. My mother had a lot of saris in her wardrobe, so it was always, you know, it was probably dormant in my mind. And I saw products being actually made, fabrics being woven, saris being made, and I fell in love with that, and I I think I never turned back.
1: It's extraordinary to me how, as you tell this story, I think of the shop that I was looking at yesterday, nearly finished, about to open, and that has so many pieces of Furnishings, I suppose we'd say, decoration. It's as though you have created a beautiful building filled with beautiful things, nearly all of them, related to the past. Do you think there is an element of wanting to open up your parents' world as well with all this? I
0: would. You know, like I I've see, I've had a beautiful life, you know, like I was I was telling my friends that, you know, I grew up pre internet. Before the mobile phone era, you know, I was watching cinema parody, so, and I said, Oh, my God, that's the kind of life we had. And, you know, like, we had one movie theater in the locality that I grew up and, you know, Calcutta had no electricity at that point of time, you know, we used to have electricity for about seven, eight hours, all the children did homework on their patios outside or under gas lights. And, uh, you know, women used to cook in charcoal stoves, and you know, we have seen a great sense of community harmony. You know, people's lives were rich with stories and uh, human relationships. And you know, when when I think of nostalgia, I don't I don't think I'm married to beautiful things from the past. What I wish. Was the fact that, you know, there was, we had a simpler life, which was layered with complexities, but it was still a simpler life. And I wanted to bring that back here. I, I think there was so much joy in the past that I want to bring back. What I'm doing is I'm planting the seeds of a future business, which is home. You know, we are going to get into home and hospitality. Very soon, and I've already done that with Pottery Barn. I, I, I have a very strong home line with one of India's largest paint and home company, Collation Paints. But I, I do want to have a home line for Sabesajee at one, some point of time. And I just think that you know, fashion designers. I, I don't even call myself a fashion designer. I think we should not be restricting ourselves to only looking at this business as pure clothing. You know, you can stretch into so many things. Uh, you know, textiles, uh, furnishing, furniture. Uh, fragrances, hotels, spas, hospitality. What this brand has, you know, when if you if you speak to anybody in India, I don't think they call this a fashion brand. They call it a lifestyle brand. What I wanted to do was I wanted to port the future through this store and show people the possibilities in which way the brand can stretch and extend. We have an art foundation which employs 40 artists who do everything from wallpaper to textiles, to art, to furnishing. Uh, We are in talks with a few galleries to do the launch of the first Sabisachi art exhibit. And at some point of time, we are going to get into the food business for sure, open restaurants. So this really is like a very immersive experience. You're creating a portal between today and tomorrow and for people to understand the magnitude and the depth and the intensity of the brand and what what they take back you know what whatever if what, every, every time i created a business i've seeded the idea of the business 5 or 6 or 7 years before the business actually took shape so this real you know nothing in the brand happens by accident it's very planned and methodical and i i i think in today's time, I personally think that white box retail does not work anymore because uh, retail has been divided into two things. It has been, it's e-tail and retail. And if you want people to move away from the comfort of their bedrooms to shop again, which I think is very joyful because human beings are communal creatures and they like tactile things, you need to convince them to come for an experience which is just larger than buying a product.
1: Did you feel the same way in doing your New York store? Because that was quite a big step forward for you. And uh, what was your spirit as you started out doing it? And how do you feel about it now? You know, for me, representation matters.
0: And I don't think that India has been represented very beautifully in the West, especially in fashion. You know, what happened yesterday with Maria Grazia and Dior was exceptional. It was the first time people were recognizing India. Not just the back end or the armpit of fashion, but uh, you know they gave him important India the importance they truly deserved. you know, I come from a country where we have so much, but I think internally in the country we have forgotten to celebrate it and take pride, and externally we have forgotten to tell people how beautiful the country is. For me, you know, I chose Christopher Street. I could have been at Madison with a smaller store or at Fifth Avenue with a smaller store. But for me, I was absolutely sure that commerce would follow later. What I needed to do, I needed to show the West how beautiful and how complex India could be. You know, the brand makes a lot of money in India, so there's a lot of reserve surplus of money. It's a very cash-rich company. And I said, fine, let, let the store bleed for a year or two. But what we'll do is we'll make sure that we do it our way. And I've always said that if you create something significant and of importance the world will find you. You don't have to reach out to them. And that's what we want to do. We want to quietly and slowly build the brand bit by bit, exactly with the tenacity that we think the brand is all about.
1: And who has found you in America? Did it start with people from your birth country and their birth country who um, found that a little bit of their past and their history has come to America, or is it a very wide selection of people who are interested in colour, in special kind of clothes?
0: You know, the beautiful thing about being a powerful immigrant is that while you're proud of who you are today in a country that you don't essentially come from, you're also very proud of the country that you've left behind. And there will always be that... Aching sense of nostalgia of trying to bridge the both. So even before I started a store in New York, statistically forty-five percent of my forty percent of my business actually came from America, because, because the Indians living in America, the Pakistanis living in America the Bangladeshis and the Sri Lankans, they're obsessively in love with the brand. And they like the fact that this, you know, brand makes, you know, so I ask a lot of people that, you know, why do you shop with us? Earlier people used to say that, you know, the clothes are so beautiful, we feel beautiful. Now the narrative has changed to the fact that we feel so proud. You know, it's not beauty anymore, it's pride. And I think somewhere down the line, we've tapped into that consciousness of the fact that, you know, they feel proud about the heritage. They want to show it to the world. And I remember at a time when a very big international giant was flirting with the idea of buying a part of my company. One of the lawyers from their side came and told me, don't sell. <laughs> and I said, why? said, so my wife told me to tell you don't sell. And he said, you know what? When you come to America, can you come with the pride and the scale in which your Indian stores are built? Because I'll tell you, at one point of in time, Indians in America were fighting for supremacy between themselves. Now they're in the most important positions of power politically, uh, in IT, in medicine, and they're all trying to break the glass ceiling. So if you come with the spirit of India, we'll all celebrate you and we'll bring our friends forward. So if you go into Christopher Street on any Sunday, you'll have lines around the block of Indians visiting the store from everywhere, from Canada, from everywhere around America. And every Indian or Pakistani or Sri Lankan or Bangladeshi brings one of the American friends in. And I think my customers are the greatest ambassadors of the brand.
1: You told me that... When you started your career, handmaking jewellery out of beads were made from horns and you sold them in the market, that you really started your career with jewellery. Yes, I rent?
0: did. You know, fashion was very expensive. I, I went to the cheapest fashion school. It was a subsidized government school, NIFT. But even then, because I was so middle class and so poor, I, I, I didn't have enough money to buy materials for fashion. So I used to actually... I improvised a business of creating jewelry out of beads and bubbles and selling it in plastic tiffin boxes to hawkers and pedestrian hawkers and uh, pedestrian streets in Calcutta, and I made a little bit of money, uh, enough to tide me over. But uh, the the business actually didn't take off because uh, there was a political movement where hawkers were removed from the streets, and we didn't have a retail store to sell. But I enjoyed the process and I told myself that, you know, when I have money and when there's a little bit of position and power, I'll get back into jewelry, but I'll do fine jewelry. So I started jewelry about five years ago, did a collaboration with Forever Mark, did a very early collaboration with a big giant in India that, uh, called Titan, uh, called uh, Tanishq, uh, which is a massive, massive jewelry brand right now. And then I started jewelry and the jewelry started doing very well. In fact, it became very influential because, you know, there was a year when we did almost all the biggest Bollywood weddings probably and combined Instagram following of hundreds and thousands of uh, like 100 million, 200 million uh, influence, mm-hmm. yeah, like people following them on Instagram. So there was uh, Deepika Padukone and Ranveer Singh, uh, Priyanka Chopra and Nick Jonas. And then there was Anushka Sharma and Virat Kohli. Virat Kohli, incidentally, was the cricket captain of India at that point of time and cricket is religion. And then there was, uh, there was, Katrina Kaif, Vicky Kaushal, and then there was Alia Bhatt and uh, Ranbir Singh, and these are all A-lister stars in the country. And both the men, the woman, the bride and the groom, both Sabe Sachi jewellery for all their functions. And it piqued a lot of national interest. And I remember when I did a show celebrating 20 years, uh, Linda Fargo from Bergdorf came in and I thought that she would buy clothes. And she came with the intent of getting clothes for Bergdorf because, you know, we are known for clothing. And she looked at the jewelry and she said, it's quite spectacular. It's something that we've never seen. And she said, would you be open to doing a jewelry first exhibit at Bergdorf? And I said, yes. And uh, nobody knew who I was. I walked into Bergdorf thinking that we would probably sell about $100,000 max. We ended up selling close to $3 million. And, and, uh, you know, it gave me the confidence to understand that, you know, my jewelry probably has a global language. So much so that when Bergdorf shut down during the pandemic, there were customers who actually implored them to open the store so that they could buy jewellery. And as one of their first ever, they sold, uh, of sold jewellery to desperate customers on the sidewalks of Fifth Avenue. And they've never done that before. And uh, I,
1: I must hear more about this desperate customers. I mean, they really are desperate to buy jewellery and your jewellery. What, what do you do? Why is your jewellery so different from other people's?
0: You know, what we have done is I've understood the zeitgeist of jewellery in this country. Earlier, jewellery in this country was bought only from the point of investment. So whether you liked the jewellery or you didn't like the jewellery, didn't matter. Because you ask any woman in India to buy jewellery, the first question she asks you, before she asks you anything else, what is your resale policy? Because, you know, I think people want to buy jewellery to hoard money, to be able to think that, you know, we can sell it at a later time and it will appreciate. But, you know, modern consumption is so much more than just acquiring wealth. It's also about enjoying wealth. So today, if I look at the younger generation of people, if I ask them that, you know, would you want a handbag or a holiday? They say, we want a holiday. Today, more and more people are investing in homes. They're investing in expensive cars because they like that kind of consumption where they can buy something that's investment worthy, but they can also consume every day of their life. You know, people have, you know, people are opening their purse, purse strings for homes. I remember speaking to a friend of mine at William Sonoma during the pandemic, and she said that a home business has kind of completely scaled up because people are realizing today that modern investment is about spending money on things that you can enjoy on an everyday basis. Indian jewelry, unfortunately, was created in such a way that there was a very steep hierarchy of stones where we only significantly used emeralds, rubies, diamonds, and gold. And the jewelry was so precious that you could only wear it to important functions. But today, people are reinterpreting the way they want their weddings to look like from very, very large, ostentatious social weddings. People are having beach weddings, cabana weddings, forest weddings, park weddings, barn weddings. And everybody needs newer and newer ways to express themselves through their clothing and their jewelry. And the younger generation likes the fact that our jewelry is pretty much, it's almost stylish. Like, you know, it's not head to toe. Like uh it's not wearing a brand head to toe. It's like, you know, like how you can probably like a pepper a Chanel jacket with a pair of Levi's jeans and sneakers. My jewelry uh, has an assortment of stones, so you know, like you'll have lavish emeralds and sapphires and rubies, but they're actually dominated by turquoises and corals and um, and moonstones and jade and things as strange as Dalmatians and uh, beer quartz. And they look beautiful. They're all done in very high quality VVS, surrounded by VVS diamonds, EF color, 18 karat gold, because we are very particular about our quality and our manufacturing, and the backs are as beautiful as the fronts. But what they're liking is the fact that they're buying precious things, which look precious, but which still has an aura of being casual, so that they can wear it to boardrooms, uh, parties, uh, you know they can wear it to the resort they can wear it while traveling and also for weddings so what we've done is we've created a very tangible business which is precious but which also expands itself to many occasions so that you're not restricted to wearing them once and keeping it in their locker and the beautiful thing is that you wear these things and because they're made with all natural gemstones in years to come they're all going to escalate in price so in India when we used to design jewelry everybody used to Put a lot of significance only on the stone and there was craftsmanship almost became nil because it was almost like modern jewelry like buying solitaires and setting them with four prongs You have two components in jewelry one is the intrinsic value of stones and the other is craftsmanship which in colloquial terms we call making so people used to buy jewelry with zero making which means you got a stone you set it with four prongs and you wore it because on a rainy day you could sell that stone and get your money back why waste money on design and manufacturing because, you know, that's not going to give you any returns. What people didn't realize is that as lab-grown diamonds become more and more significant, lab-grown gemstones become more and more significant, it is artisanal craft that is actually going to become much more expensive than actual stones. So because they are going to get rarer and rarer. So what we have started doing, we have started getting a consortium of jewelers, like karigas uh, uh, or craftsmen, who we call babus, who used to make very big, very beautiful pieces. And what we are doing is we are upping the quality of craftsmanship in our product. So we are doing jewelry from the point of view of craftsmanship first and stone second. Because today's jewelry that you buy it from us will belong to museums tomorrow because of the fact that that kind of craftsmanship might not be available anymore. Stones will be available in life, but craftsmanship won't be. We're trying to preserve that as much as we can. So it's almost like a renaissance of jewelry that's happening in this country because before we started doing jewelry, everything was very modular. Right now, we also see that we have great influence in the jewellery market in this country because a lot of our jewellery is getting copied. And more and more craftspeople are getting employed. It's not just people who polish and cut stones, but people who actually set them.
1: Do you think that in the future you may be wanting to do more than to sell things. Do you think you would conceivably go into what you've been talking about, which is collections of beauty from the past or indeed from the present? Do you imagine if you look 10 years ahead that you could be a company that has not just wedding dresses, although I'm sure they'll keep their importance, but also a different kind of sales of things that you find beautiful and that are modern for today?
0: absolutely you know so we are going to have curated antique stores we are going to have art galleries like i said we're going to have restaurants that celebrate all of that because i think one of the most communal things that people can do is as community is eat together so i want to have these restaurants where you celebrate art and music and craft and everything together you know for me uh, when i look at service 20 years from now fashion is going to play a very small role in the whole business the business would have expanded to many other things and not just clothing and there is going to be definitely a few movies that we're going to make as well. You know, I, I worked in theater for a long time before I got into fashion. I've done movies in India. I've art directed a few. So I think at some point of time, we're to do films as well. But the idea is to celebrate culture in every facet. It
1: doesn't have to be restricted only to clothing. I love this conversation. I realize that you've only just started in all the things you're intending to do and already planning to do. I can't wait to hear more of them. And I can't wait to come back to India and see another few things that you've put together while I've been away.
0: Well, Thank you. You know, I'll tell you something. I had this one night in Barcelona and I went to see Sagrada Familia. And I broke down and I cried. And I cried and howled like a little baby because the love that Gaudi had, because he built everything with such singularity of vision that, you know, long after he's gone, everybody's contributing towards his vision and keeping it alive. And I keep telling myself that what you see of Sabi Sachi today, the tip of the iceberg, that I'll probably create in my lifetime, and I hope that the next generation carries that message forward, because this really is a portal through which the world gets into a larger India that they need to discover. I, I think... Beyond the tropes of camels and elephants and snakes and peacocks and pink and palaces and Maharajas and spirituality, there's so much more complexity to India. And it's a unique country. And I think I'm trying to build a tiny portal through which people get excited
1: about traveling into this country and discovering more. I've got a question for you. We've now seen Dior come here to your country. Are you going to have a store in Paris? 100%.
0: At some point of time, I will. It might not be immediate, but in the next two, three years, absolutely. Because I think the world is truly global right now and culture is becoming more fluid. You know, people talk about appropriation. I don't really accept it all the time because sometimes I think it's politicized. But I think that customers right now are willing to celebrate celebrate other cultures in a very inclusive way. And I use the word celebrate quote unquote, because I think we enjoy dipping into other people's worlds and exploring it. And uh, this is a fantastic time for brands to cross over from the West to the East and the East to the West.
1: I'm excited about what is ahead for you and therefore for me to be able to see. I loved our conversation and I know that in five minutes I'll be hearing something new that you're doing.
0: (laughs) I don't know about that, but thank you. Thank you.
1: Sabia Sachi. I'm overwhelmed by the sheer volume of work that goes into everything you touch. Thank you for talking to me. Showing me around your new store and sharing your ethos and your approach to design and the wider world. It's fascinating to see how you fuse tradition and the TikTok generation. Your passion for collecting, preserving craft and keeping artisanal techniques alive is as important as making art for the future. I'm so glad we met in New York all those years ago, and you had the courage to take my advice. Your new store in such a noble building already looks like your home, with this graceful mass of furniture and vibrant materials. And your new world has blended so beautifully, I can't tell past from present. With one glimpse at your Instagram account, you can see the passion which goes into your collections. Creative Conversations with Suzy Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels.